1: Hello and welcome to another edition of the Ducks Confidential Podcast. I'm James Crepia and he is Aaron Fentress and we will be going over, uh, boy, gee, I just don't, I just don't know what we'll be going over. Uh, no, we'll be going over Oregon's <laughs> upset win, obviously at Ohio State at 8. We're
0: talking about Stony Brook, right?
1: Yes, it will be a full, uh, uh, 13 seconds of discussion of Stony Brook this week. Uh, I may inform you where they are located. Uh, but we will go back to and obviously, uh, discuss one of the biggest wins. In Oregon program history, a 35-28 upset of Ohio State in Ohio Stadium. Uh, obviously starting with the enormity of the win. Uh, let's start with that, Aaron. Where do you think it ranks? Uh, where, where does, you know, to put into, into perspective a bit, uh, just the sheer magnitude of this win, which is, there's, there's really, in my opinion, there's really no overstating it. It's enormous.
0: Yeah. Well, first I'm, I'm eating my crow. Did you bring your crow? We both had the ducks losing.
1: I mean, I, I was both wrong and correct uh, simultaneously.
0: I fricasseed my crow. So um, anyway, no, th- that was, that was, first of all, that was a great football game. I mean, that was a fun football game to watch. I was very entertained. I'm sure you were there. I'm sure it was just amazing in that uh, a stadium as loud as it was. And to watch those Ohio State fans uh, sulk a little bit at the end there. But no, it, it there's no way around how huge of a win that was, I mean, for, for a myriad of reasons. Um, however, I am of the mind that the win can either become bigger or diluted as the season goes along based on whatever happens with Oregon and whatever happens with Ohio State. But in that moment, on that stage, in that setting and being on the road against a program that rarely loses at home, an all-time great you know, marquee blue blood program, it was absolutely one of the greatest wins in, in Ducks history, especially for the regular season, no doubt.
1: Yeah, for a regular season win, it's about as good as it gets. Um, It's hard to top that in a regular season. Uh, I mean, quite literally, other than, my goodness, I mean, you'd have to think. Given the ranking, given what Ohio State is expected to do, uh, I mean, short of like going into Bryant-Denny Stadium in Alabama in a season where they're obviously very, very good. Uh, maybe going into Tiger Stadium and LSU when they're good, not this year, it, it appears. Uh, perhaps a Georgia or a Clemson. That's about it. I mean, you've got a handful of places in college football where going in and they're absolute pits to play, where the home team just basically never loses. And to go in and do it as a two touchdown underdog, no less, uh, yeah, to, to manage to accomplish that. And do it early. uh, Yeah, you're right. I mean, look, ultimately you can have an early season win that looks like it's pretty good, and then as as the season goes on, uh, it may tail off a bit, but you know that Ohio State ultimately, I mean, look at the games that it has. I think it's the next five games, I believe. Uh, I mean, you've got Tulsa and I believe Akron after that, and a couple of Big Ten teams with the, you know, the Maryland's and Rutgers of the world, before they ultimately eventually play Penn State on October the 30th, Michigan at the end. So, yeah, they have a couple of tough games, but, but to be clear, I mean it, a a truly what disastrous season for Ohio State is three losses somehow. I mean that would be yeah. you know the wheels have fallen off and you know the, hot
0: seats the, everywhere.
1: Yeah, I mean that that would be that would be truly you know epic proportions. Whereas you know Alabama, Florida State a couple of years ago was one versus three in uh, one of the early season games, and Florida State's quarterback got hurt, and uh, we all know how that season ended. Uh, so no, nah, I mean you can't. It, I, I don't think you, you're worried about this win falling off a cliff, proverbially. Um, it, it certainly could be impacted if, yes, if Penn State pulled an upset. Uh, well, at the moment, what would be perceived as an upset that we'll get to October 30th, we'll see. But that's for, that's for Ohio State fans to worry about. Ultimately, yeah. Ducks fans, they picked up uh, a heck of a win, a historic win, one that carries a lot of meaning uh, in, both in the short term to the long term. And most importantly to me, I think, beyond you know, we're, we're stacks in the record books and all those sorts of things. Time will tell. Time will tell by the end of the season. Time will tell. In retrospect, time will tell over the course of history. Those are things to debate and argue for many, many years to come. What it means for this season and what it does for this season, and I think what it means most importantly, is the massive, massive shot in the arm that it gives to the program and to the Pac-12 conference, but mainly to the program, because there had been this line of thinking from Pac-12 fans and especially Pac-12 media, uh, c- certain people in Pac-12 media, I just never, I've never understood. I completely am <laughs> diametrically o- opposite. But there is this thought process among Pac-12 media and some fans that why do Pac-12 teams even bother scheduling these games? Yeah. I mean, don't they know that they're just going to be embarrassed and mortified? And you know, you should just basically try to sneak in the playoff as any way imaginable. Yeah, don't play anyone too tough. And you know, for, for all the feeling that Ducks fans are getting. Uh, and have been getting for the last, you know, 48 hours and counting now. This is why this is why you schedule these games because when you win and yes, by by rule you are allowed to win. Uh <laughs> when you win, you reap the benefits of a massive infusion of relevance and credibility on the national stage and look, I can't stand that in week 2 of the season we're talking about the college football playoff. I, I loathe loathe the entire thought process involved. Believe me, I, agree. Um, I can't stand it after the game, all the national media after the game, every single question was about the big picture and the playoff and what it means for that sense. Um, I mean, believe me, I was I was just, ugh. but <laughs> because to me, like what we don't you know, other upsets can't happen somewhere else. I mean, we're just assuming we're just chalking everybody up to the playoff. Already. Yeah, it's, who's it's who's in and who's it's out? Ridiculous. I mean, it's absurd. Yeah. But point is, is that is, you know, perception is reality. You know, Uh that's, that's that just phrase. the way it goes. It, but it is. I mean, I, you can't change that the dialogue right now in the sport, the way it's been and continues to be in the four team playoff model is that it's about the playoff and it's about who's in. Well, right now Oregon's one of the four teams in everybody's conversation. And I don't think they would have absolutely unequivocally completely fallen off the radar with a loss, even perhaps a two score loss, but a win puts you so firmly in the conversation. That's right. why you play these games. That's why it matters in the short term. And the long term, obviously, we, we know what it could mean um, and, and the debates that will be had in many months and years to come. But to the here and now, it is the massive infusion of relevance where Oregon is going to be nationally relevant for weeks to come into even even a game this week with Sony Brook that, yes, we will talk about for all about probably about 15 seconds, uh, that People will have to pay attention to results in the Pac 12 for Oregon, for USC, for UCLA. And they're gonna to have to. And that's not necessarily the case if Pac-12 teams go out losing those games. That's what this means, I think, in the both in the long term and the short term. So obviously for Ducks fans, I'm sure one of the one of the great wins to celebrate in the regular season. And uh look, your team earned it and that's that's what comes with it. That's that's awesome. Uh, that's a tremendous, again, a tremendous accomplishment uh, in every in every way. Match, lots to go over from the game for sure.
0: Oregon has always been super aggressive in, in scheduling. It was one of their plans back in the two in thousands to become more relevant to play those games. That's why they scheduled home and homes with Oklahoma and Michigan, et cetera, et cetera. And then teams, some teams were backing out because they didn't want to come to Austin, especially after Oregon beat Michigan at home when Michigan was number three in 2003, there were some teams that they had home and homes with who were like, yeah, we're good. <laughs> we, don't, we don't want to risk losing that game because before then it was felt, oh, you can go to Austin and pick up a cheap win. They got a small stadium. So Oregon has been very aggressive in doing this and it, and it pays off in the end, like you just said, with, with the win on Saturday. And I've the mentality, and I, I do remember like when the Ducks were contending for national titles not too many years ago, I do remember conversations about don't schedule those teams. You get an easy conference win. That's better. It helps you down the road. I've always been of the mind that you shouldn't be able to even be in the playoff conversation or the BCS Bowl conversation if you didn't play a strong non-conference game, at least one, at least one top 25 teams. I've never understood that mentality. This is why you schedule these games just like you said, because... Your, your goal should be to win these types of games, not to fear these types of games because you think they're going to knock you out of the playoffs. And what kind of mentality is that? Oh, we want to be a playoff team, but we're afraid to play the type of team we might actually play in the playoff team early in the season. So I agree with you 100 percent on that.
1: Yeah, it does. It's never made sense to me. Um, and like I say, hopefully, hopefully uh, not only for Oregon fans that this gets extinguished, uh, but hopefully really for a large swath of Pac-12 fans that uh, that that entire thought process that this season can live up to. Uh, The opportunity and the potential that's there to where that entire defeatist uh, attitude and and perspective just gets completely extinguished because that's, uh, again, it just doesn't doesn't make any sense. Lots to go over from the game. Obviously, the good, the bad, Uh, the ugly. There was not a particular not a bad, to be honest with you, uh, for Oregon's purposes. But we will start with what was uh, just a gut-wrenching situation in the course of the game. Cam McCormick comes back from three years of injury starts the game, uh, was playing well, playing quite well. uh, He's a great blocker. Blocking really well. uh, Got out on a route on uh, 3rd and eight, deep inside Oregon Territory in the shadow of their own goalpost there in the south end zone, and caught the pass, converted, and then suffered what has turned out to be a season-ending right leg, right foot injury. Just absolutely uh, gut-wrenching, devastating uh, for the young man um, who – Again, he is a six-year senior, but he does have two additional years of eligibility, so he's not technically one of the super seniors who doesn't count against the scholarship number this year. He's not in that group. He does have more time, but after three years of injury and surgery and recovery from surgeries, to have yet another one and all of his previous injuries that happened to the left leg, and now this happens to the right one. I it's, mean, it's, it's hard to put into words. It just is. It's, it's absolutely uh, it, it's brutal and there's no, there's, it's, it's hard to put into words and encapsulate just how you feel for somebody who has gone through as much as Cam McCormick has already, and now gets dealt yet another blow, but is intent on returning and intent on fighting it off and, and giving it yet another go. And that's, I think that just speaks volumes about who he is and what he's about that that's, the immediate outlook, uh, where, where I mean, I was hearing from fans yesterday uh, before the news and right as the news was coming down that it was, uh, you know, season ending, that he should just give it up. And when, if he, boy, if he took their advice anytime in the last three years, he wouldn't have been able to do what he did on Saturday. Those so people I, were
0: never athletes. I, they were never competitors.
1: I mean, you got me, but uh, yeah, I mean, there were folks who just, I, I don't know, uh, but there's, there's a whole lot of people I think who stayed at Holiday Inn Express last night and professed and to be doctors because... <laughs> My goodness! Um, just the sheer volume of folks who, um, who purport to be Ducks fans who just are are wishing the young man would retire. I mean, that just blows me away. Uh, like I say, I just don't get that at all. And I, I fell for him. I saw him on the field after the game uh, on crutches and, and with the walking boot. And I, at the time, I obviously I didn't know the severity, but severe enough to where he was where he was. And I just said, "Hey, look, you you know you'll be back. Whatever it is, you know you'll be back." Uh, so again, if I, I, I Feel for him. Uh, Certainly feel for him a ton and hope he gets back is, you know, for next year. And yeah, I'm sure, you know, look forward. I look, let's put it this way. I look forward to writing the story of, you know, Cam McCormick, the the 26-year-old senior who's got a a wall full of degrees by the time (laughs) he leaves Oregon. I mean, he's working on a master's now and it's a one-year program. So uh he's <laughs> he's got all the time in the world and all the, <laughs> to complete more i mean quite literally he could be on his way to multiple master's degrees or a doctorate by the time this is all said and done but no, truly um you know for for off the field he's ask anybody around the program uh they have nothing but but kind and and praiseful words to say of the young man uh for him to have another injury is just uh just brutal just absolutely brutal
0: so his mom, Deb McCormick, who I've gotten to know over the last 20 months, written a couple stories about them, including one that ran Friday before his, his start. And she told me that he was probably going to start and he was all excited. They felt they needed more physicality from the tight end position. Uh, he definitely is an elite level blocker. He, he gets in there and like you said, played well and then he catches that pass. And I texted her. I was like, Ooh, that was nice. And then she texts me, Oh no. And I look at the screen to see what she was talking to. And he's still down. And I'm like, I didn't notice that he didn't get up and all the duck, a lot of ducks came on the field and they were around him. And, uh, he gets up and he hops off on his left foot, which is the, f- the foot that had given him so many troubles for the last three years. They had multiple surgeries on. So I thought, well, at least it's not that foot. That's good. And he hopped off and I'm thinking calf. I'm thinking, you know, twisted ankle, you know, these things happen all the time in football. And apparently from the sideline, he called his mom and, and, told him that they thought it was a calf strain because that was the initial feeling or calf strain. But by the time, you know, the game ended after the game, it had been determined that it might've been a lot more serious, but Cam was just still so upbeat. I, you know, on his Instagram page, he was doing Instagram videos from the team playing and he's laughing and joking around with guys, even though he's already in a boot, just high spirits, you know, hoping for the best, et cetera, et cetera. But it's just so happy that he got to play and he got to, be productive in a game like that at Ohio state and contribute to the win. And then of course it, it comes out later that it was super serious. It's going to cost him the season. Um So it yeah, it's it, the whole situation for me was just surreal because it just doesn't, it's so unfair and it doesn't make any, it doesn't even make any mathematical sense. How does one person endure that many serious injuries? He lost his senior year of high school, his entire senior year of football, basketball, and, and track and field. To an ACL, you know, and then everything with the foot, and now this. Uh, so yeah, it's hard to see, but this is not a quitter. Like any, any fan you saw saying he should just give it up, that person never played sports. There's no way they were never a competitor. They don't understand. This is still a very young man. Uh, why quit? You got two years of eligibility. You got all the medical resources you could possibly receive. You have to heal it anyway right? You have to heal it anyway. You're not going to just be injured the rest of your life and be in a walking boot the rest of your life, right? So you have to injure, heal it anyway. So if you're going to heal it and it becomes healed, you still might as well go play football. Why not? So I think he'll definitely be back.
1: Yeah. And look, for those who, uh, want to talk about whatever, whatever it could mean for future prospects, pro prospects and the rest. Well, one, that's, that's, let that be the good problem he has to worry about.
0: Right.
1: Uh, But two, and I covered a, uh, college running back who had left and graduated college, uh, I believe he was 25 uh, when he had left because uh, he had taken two years off between high school and going to junior college and then uh, was in college for ended up being four years. So I believe he was 24, 25. And ultimately you go, well, the average career is only like three years anyway. So if the wear isn't on the tires and it really wasn't, then the wear is not on the tires. Now, his was not injury related, to be clear, but -hmm. it was an age thing. Well, the injuries is the, the issue, not the age. And ultimately you worry about just getting in and proving yourself once you're there, whatever the age is. And all right, clearly it's, it's going to have an impact by way of the true career longevity, just because if he does manage to pull that off, he's going to be coming in at 25 or 26 years of age potentially. Mm -hmm. But again, you can still have a professional career at that age. Uh, There's nothing against it. So Again, first and foremost, uh again you feel you feel absolutely terrible for him him and his family, uh, to have to endure yet another uh wrench thrown in, and uh, another injury thrown in. But uh in terms of the ability to come back and like you say, Aaron, I mean, he's gonna have to do it anyway. Uh so might as well why, why why deprive yourself? Why take away uh football from the entire process uh when it doesn't need to be? Uh so We'll see, uh, but obviously a story that we'll we'll discuss and uh, a journey that we'll continue to discuss probably months down the road uh, as Cam McCormick makes his way back uh, into the future. But uh, the other aspects of the game uh, that he certainly played a part in, in setting the stage for the running game, and uh, and one running back named C.J. Verdell, uh, where, like I say, I was, I was both wrong and right last week in terms of uh, uh, outlook for the game by way of score prediction, but right insofar as... Uh, If Oregon was going to do it, it was going to be on the legs and shoulders of its running back. And boy, did he have a absolutely banner performance. Uh, A just tremendous, tremendous showing. Earned it the hard way. Uh, Only got tackled for loss once. It was the only tackle for loss uh, in the game for Ohio State on 20 carries. And I know that a couple of them are credited as passes. Man, at least two of those pass "quote unquote" passes were laterals, and yeah, one of them, that- I'm pretty sure, it was just downright behind. Where I went, that's that's a lateral and a run. That's not. I'm like, that's a toss. I'm like, that's not a pass. But be that as it may, 195 total yards of offense, three touchdowns. That is exactly what Oregon needed and required to win this game, and that is is impressive a stat line when you consider the caliber of opponent and the setting and everything else. I know that it's not the most prolific game of CJ Verdell's career, but I would put that right up there with forget about Washington state and the two fifty something he ran for back in 19. I mean, Washington state didn't have a defense. Uh, I mean, give me a break, but that would be right up there with, to me, the Utah game and the Pac-12 title game in 2019. I know that was more prolific and yes, Utah had an elite run defense, and Ohio State's run defense has been downright awful to start this season. I would put that right up there, though. I and mean, that, that was a absolutely tremendous performance. No? so uh, Okay, so you were down on CJ last week, and now you're going to just poo-poo everything about his accomplishment. You yeah, hated it going in, and you hated it going was, out. Aaron's still never, completely not on the CJ Verdell bandwagon. No, Aaron stop. is not buying the 14-1 to win the Heisman. Stop. Aaron is completely – I don't know stop. what CJ ever stop. did to him. I don't understand it. He he must not like San Diego. He hates the Padres too. He is completely against it.
0: Are you done? Okay. I knew knew you were going to do this. One, I've never been against C.J. Verdell. I wrote a 3,000-word feature on the kid two years ago leading up to Stanford. I'm very pro C.J. Verdell. What I said was I didn't think not having C.J. Verdell was the problem with the running game in the past because any good running back can run through big holes if there are holes available. My problem is with the offensive line. I think C.J. Verdell is a very good running back, but I don't think C.J. Verdell is a running back who's inventing and creating holes and, and doing things that like a Barry Sanders or someone like that who's just making things happen. In this game, for me, my thing was the offensive line. It always has been. And C.J. Verdell was the beneficiary of some of the biggest holes in the history of mankind. Like, all th- all three of his touchdowns, he was never touched. He was never touched because of the scheme Oregon was using and the ridiculous defense Ohio State was playing. For example, Dye scored on touchdowns to the left, just like Verdell scored two of his touchdowns. Why did they score on those touchdowns? There was nobody out there. There was, they were so, Ohio State was so ill prepared for the run wide to the left that on all three of those touchdown runs, the Ducks pulled the lineman who never yeah, had nobody to block touched.
1: anyone. Yeah, nobody
0: there touched. was no one. So in theory, you could have given the ball to the lineman and he would have scored. <laughs> Because he was the one out there. So I'm not taking anything away from Verdell. I'm just saying that it, there are every running back in the country at the FBS, FCS, division two, II, division three level. That's a tailback would have scored on those three plays with the exception of maybe 5%. Now, even the long touchdown run, again, it's a, it's a great play. But again, what is Ohio state doing? Two linebackers vacated. Their spot, one chasing the, uh, I think it was Webb who ran a flat route from the other side, cross flat route from the other side. He chased him. Another backer went, even the safety moved to his left. There was only one eligible receiver on that side. That was Webb when he moved over from the other side because they were running that unbalanced thing with the three receivers to the left with two on a line of scrimmage. The middle receiver was covered. Therefore, he wasn't eligible. So the guy covering him was a waste of space because he had no reason to cover him. So the safety, two linebackers vacate the, Line creates an eight foot wide hole and Verdell runs through it and goes for a touchdown. Again, he ran through it. He ran out, ran the safety, but that's not a play where I'm like going, wow, CJ Verdell, you're an amazing running back. That's all I'm saying. It's not, I'm not trying to say he isn't good. I'm just saying that Die would have scored on every last one of those plays.
1: I think any time that you run for 77 yards, <clears throat> uh, I don't care who the other team is, but when the other team is the home team and the number three team in the country and a team who did have a top 10 run defense last year, <clears throat> albeit has gotten off to a just terrible start this year. Uh, but I think what's impressive about that run, even though, yes, the hole was enormous and it got cleared out there. And it was no second he out- level. He outran. <laughs> he outran everybody.
0: Yeah, ran one then person. He outran. There was only one person that had a chance there to chase him. And the, and the there guy there was coming lo- from the other side of the field.
1: All right. The other safety. He, shook, the, the other safety off the, he cheated. shook off the tackle to the end zone. He shook he shook off the tackle that was on him. Okay. And they so so Ohio State's defensive backs are supposed to be slower than Oregon's running back.
0: Again, it's the angle and the distance created by the fact they have three receivers wide We've left. We've never so seen a running back get chased
1: down by a defensive back. Uh, of,
0: of course we. Are. I'm not saying Verdell didn't I mean, I seem finish to remember the run. Like, but with uh, DK Di- Metcalf Di- have- chased
1: down a defensive you're, back last you're, you're, year you're in the pur- NFL. You're purposely
0: right? you're purposely ignoring my point. My point is that any running back with any decent speed is going to finish that run. I'm not saying Verdell isn't good. I'm just saying Verdell's not running a four four oh at the combine and next year when he goes out, I guarantee you that. Again, he didn't did his he job. But the most important thing that happened in that game was not Verdell. The most important thing was the scheming they were used to befuddle Ohio State. And why, here's the other thing too. All four of these touchdowns we're talking about, the three to the left and the one up the middle, were all against man defense. And there was one play where Mataval cracks and the guy over him's in man, so he goes with him while he's going to crack because he's covering him. And then that defender runs into the middle linebacker. And then the, the, that's one of the reasons why the pulling lineman had no on the block. So, again, Verdell scored on a touchdown. He ran to the end zone. But you could have stuck any running back in that spot in the Pac-12, and they also score. That's all I'm saying. So, for me, it was the scheming, the genius scheming, to make Ohio State look completely ill-prepared. Like, if I'm Ohio State's defensive coaches, and I'm watching that game film later, I'm thoroughly, absolutely embarrassed about what I allowed to happen. How could you not adjust and change? Just stay in zone for crying out loud. Also, you gotta give credit to the O line. They executed flawlessly. Those guys created ginormous holes the entire game that anyone could run through. So yes, Verdell had a good game, but for me, the scheme and the O line more important than the back.
1: Well to me, uh you know they're not mutually exclusive. Um, you know, it's the <laughs> offensive coordinator's job to put his players uh in the position to succeed. And ultimately, it's on the players to then uh, reap the benefits and execute on the back end and and do their jobs. And you're right, the offensive line did do a terrific job. Uh, they did, and they were, you know they are to be commended collectively as a whole and, and obviously more than just any one guy, more than just even five guys because they played seven uh, so, you know for significant reps in the game. <clears throat> and for that matter, there was fine blocking by tight ends by run, uh, uh, by running backs, by wide receivers, you name it. Uh so yeah, it was yeah. a collective 100%. effort in that regard in the ground game. But even if you take away the seventy seven yard run uh by Verdell, he's they still averaged, Oregon still averaged over five yards per carry against Ohio State. And that was where yeah. yeah, they had the three uh runs to the left there. Uh and again, we're calling the one for, for Verdell that it was technically they a they it a pass, they called it a pass right? It's, a, it's, it's quick pass. It was it was yeah. it was a run. I mean it was it was a run, be it as it may. Um that but at the same time it was short fields. He, they, they went the distance, whatever the distance was, 14 yards, I believe, was pretty much all of them, or 14, 16, somewhere in that general ballpark. But that's as far as they could go. You know, they, they got the number that they got, but it wasn't like the run, well, they got stopped, you know, just uh, – yeah, they got stopped in the end zone is where they got stopped. They, they, <laughs> they You couldn't have turned the run into a 30-yard run. It, it was capped off. So the point is, is they average five per carry – even right. without the 77, and that's right. an enormous number unto itself. So, And the, the, some of the areas that they had longer runs, they were not have been able to have any longer than they did have. So, again, I, I thought it was uh, a collective effort, to be sure, but I'm never going to be one to uh, take anything away from somebody who runs for 161 and uh, close to 200 in total yards and the three touchdowns and the rest. Uh, again, I think C.J. Verdell very much got to earn, uh, finally, what has been long overdue and evaded him by way of uh, respect on the national stage. And it's, it's to me, it's just borderline unfathomable that he's been as uh, uh, overlooked uh, nationally speaking as he has been. But I think that is changing uh, in a hurry. And as long as he stays healthy, which we know has been a problem uh, with myriad minor injuries and obviously the thumb injury last year, but as long as he's able to stay healthy, I think he has all the opportunity in the world to be, Not only the top running back in the Pac-12 this season, uh, but to be among the top running backs in the country this season. And certainly one of the most prolific. Uh, So we start there because the ground game was uh, tremendous. And and as Aaron mentioned, yes, the unbalanced formation they turned to several times, uh, hit on a lot of plays, not just some of the plays uh, that we're mentioning already. But before CJ's first touchdown early in the second quarter, uh, they went to the unbalance with Anthony Brown on one Travis had a 15 yard run, but they got the face mask that was out of the unbalance. And then the final conversion of the DJ Johnson came out of the unbalance. And that was huge, not only because it's a conversion, it takes more time, but in the, uh, the first couple of instances that they ran the unbalanced set, the outside receivers were blocking downfield, and they were run plays. So no problem. But on the last one, because it ended up being a pass to DJ Johnson, Chris Hudson, who was covered up and thus ineligible, he stayed exactly three yards downfield for blocking (laughs) purposes. And that is, and you talk about a young receiver who's only in his eighth, ninth college football game in a road environment on a monumentally enormous play in a setting where it is deafeningly loud. You couldn't hear yourself speak. And he comes through and executes every aspect of it perfectly. Just perfectly. Yeah, the play itself, it's obviously away from the play. But if he steps one more yard further, he jeopardizes the play. He did exactly what he needed to do. So they ran that unbalanced set multiple times throughout the course of the game to unbelievable efficiency uh, and effectiveness. And to Aaron's point, if you're Ohio State's coaching staff, uh, you're mortified by that. You're mortified by getting hit to the boundary over and over and over and over again. You're mortified by uh Alex Forsyth coming out after the game and saying, and, and not in a bad way. You didn't mean it that way. But if you're Ohio State, you're taking it as a bad way. He goes, Yeah, we watched Minnesota and saw some of the combo blocks they were doing and kind of incorporated it in what we were doing. If you're Ohio State's defensive line coach, you gotta be going, Are you kidding? Like, I mean, if you're if you're Ryan Day, you gotta be looking over at Larry Johnson, going, I'm sorry. We did nothing all week to adjust to that or in game to adjust to that. I mean, basically you got beat off the ball a week ago and Ohio state fans here yeah, Oregon say, yeah, we pretty much did a lot of the same stuff. That is not reassuring at all. If you're Ohio state and that's where, uh, when Ryan day talks about structural changes to the defensive staff, you understand why, because that is bad.
0: How, How do you see a team use the unbalanced situation numerous times and not come to the conclusion that you don't have to cover that guy. Like you right. can literally just, now they could shift now they could shift, but mm-hmm. even if you shifted in some capacity, you still, you're wasting Like it's just, a, it boggles my mind that they, that no one said, even at halftime that no one said, okay, when they come out in this imbalance, we're going to shift to this and and just ignore that guy. And you have another defender in the box to defend the run.
1: I've agreed with that before Aaron and, and in, in, in any level of football, but especially college football. But there's there's so many things involved. One, as you mentioned, there could be a shift. Two, uh, and look, to be fair, Can you shift you know, back. What to be to be fair in terms of context here, uh, Oregon hit Cal, and now Oregon defensive coordinated Tim DeRuyter on this a couple of times last season. So it's not like it's it's a, a one off thing. They did this plenty of times last year too, and it was mainly for some of the stuff where Die came out on wheel routes um, mm-hmm. On, mm-hmm. on the covered up mm-hmm. receiver. So. It is a tough – in terms of pre-snap, what is the cornerback and Ohio State's cornerback. Some of them were very young because even though Seven Banks was listed as available, he didn't play. Um, So that was gamesmanship in and of itself. But there were young players – and I know they're all in college. They're all young. But there were particularly young players where you're going, what is your pre-snap thing? They're worried about the matchup and what their leverage is and et cetera. They're not necessarily looking to the feet. I'm not telling you that that's acceptable – I've always said to me, uh, just look if the inside guy is covered up. And if they are, there should be a pretty quick check here. I agree. With I you. get
0: that the first but, couple of
1: times. <laughs> but when it comes and because it's not the NFL where you don't have in helmet communication to somebody up until 10 seconds or any second for that matter. It makes it hard uh, to potentially, you know, have that kind of adjustment. Now, again, I'm with you. I, I don't understand why uh, college defenses don't adjust better to things like that. Uh, to where that is something that so befuddles them uh, so regularly, but there are reasons. Uh, whereas at the NFL, not only are they obviously at, you know that much more proficient and, and study the game that much more, but because of in helmet communication to at least one player who can relay such a thing pretty quickly before you know they they kill the helmet communication. That is also a factor. Having said that, but but they get I agree don't they, they, they get, get stills.
0: Can't they look at stuff on the sideline? They no, can, uh,
1: they, no, no, they can't. Not in the college. They can't get stills. No, oh, not maybe. in college. No, you can't. That's been. A they can long still initiative. talk upstairs, though, right? They can talk upstairs. Yeah, yeah. Every, you know, during the course of it, but they can't get stills. Uh, they can't get video. They can't get you know, basically all the stuff that the NFL has to make it. Um, to make the in-game chess match. Um, I mean, they, they're they're playing at a different level. They're playing 4D chess. Uh, in in the NFL by, <laughs> by that way, whereas uh right. the the college game is playing even lower than uh what high school is insofar as the communication that's involved. And that's been a discussion point for literally a decade. It is amazing that college football is still tripping all over itself with this issue. Uh, but be that as it may, that plays into some of this. But right. to your point, I, I do agree that I, I whether we're talking about Ohio State this weekend or plenty of defenses that get caught in this kind of stuff, I don't understand why there is not better in-game adjustment uh, to a tactic like that because – I understand why it's troubling and why it puts the defense in a bind. I don't understand why, after repeated mess ups, that there can't be a quicker adjustment that I don't understand at all uh and that's it something that it doesn't make any sense. Know, that's no. what you do
0: that's no. what you do and here's the other thing too. there's safety, oh my God, that guy, no offense to him, but he's he's responsible, I think. For three of the four touchdown runs because he com- t- completely took himself out of any type of reasonable position to make and have an angle and make a play on the, on the short runs as well as the long runs. It was, it was crazy what he was doing and he was in man free each time. So he had no responsibility to do anything but scan and watch and react. So that was crazy. And then that set up what was beauty, the beauty, the beauty of all this was the last touchdown. Again, same look, same work. You know, they use the receivers a little differently and they motion Johnson across this time, but they still had a receiver over there who could have cracked. And then they play faked and throw a touchdown to Bonneval, right? And, And on that play, the safety comes up, comes forward on the play fake as if he has run support and lets the tight end run right by him. Like It was just one of the more clueless defenses I've ever seen. And you wouldn't expect that from an Ohio State.
1: And one He's where, winning. and I, I showed the clip of the video, I tweeted the clip of the video of that play in particular, where that was one where, I mean, theoretically, they could have handed the ball off to CJ, and he could have he, scored he, anyway. he gains yards, he gains <laughs> yeah. yards, whether or not he right. would have scored the touchdown is a really a moot point, but he definitely gains right. yards on the play, he only would have had one linebacker to beat, and he had a whole lot of room to wiggle around him, so... Right. Ultimately, uh, there were ample options uh, for Oregon to hit Ohio State, and it did many, 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 many times. And again, a, a tremendous win, and it started with the ground game and a lot of the scheme and tactics and, uh, that were employed by Joe Moorhead. And ultimately, like I said, yeah, they outplayed, they outcoached, they outschemed, they out everything Ohio State from an offensive standpoint against Ohio State's defense. And if you had asked uh, anybody going into the game uh, if that were – Basically, if one side of that particular exchange and matchup was to be out-coached, out-schemed, out-performed, uh, I think a lot of people would have picked the other way. Uh, and particularly from the Ohio State side of things, uh, I think a lot of people would have picked the other way. I know of another of a, a I'm not going to throw people under the bus because it was, it was kind of conjectured. They didn't say it to me directly. But bottom line, there was somebody of prominence at the game on Saturday who, heading into the game, felt that... Uh, Oregon was not going to be able to hang with Ohio State in the trenches. And uh, needless to say, they were uh, very wrong uh, by the end of the game. (laughs) You're listening to Ducks Confidential. We'll be back after a quick break. To the quarterback position uh, and Anthony Brown's performance. Uh, What did you think of it, Aaron?
0: Man, he, you know, he did everything they asked him to do. Like he, he wasn't necessarily spectacular, but he was smart. He was efficient. Um, he, he made accurate throws to his guys. He used the play action very well. He ran when needed. They ran a power play with him as the lead blocker around the left, or excuse me, with him running behind the play as the lead back, basically. Uh, that was a very nice, des- nicely designed play by them. Another instance of attacking the left side. Uh, so no, he, he, Looked like a veteran QB who's been there, done that, and uh, took advantage of everything he had at his disposal. Never tried to force anything. Never tried to make it about him. Uh, and just was, a, 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 you know, a cog in the machine. Did a really good job.
1: Yeah, I thought he did well. Uh, I'm certainly not going to say he did poorly. He did well. But to Aaron's point, I thought basically Aaron, uh, I, thought he, I thought Anthony Brown did well and that, He did not have some of the issues that he had the prior week where, uh, you know, there was misses here, there was overthrows here, there was underthrows there. The misses that he had on the long throws, which look, both teams missed them. So we're, you know, we're not going to get into all the missed shots. Both teams missed what could have been touchdowns on long throws, both sides, multiple on on both occasions, but they were overthrows where, all right, if you're going to miss it, you're going to miss it over the top and let that be an incompletion. So from that standpoint, I don't even mind that and, you know, those incompletions at all. There were a couple of drops that were had. There were a couple, a couple. Uh, Johnny had one and he ended up having a catch. And, and one of them was because he had, he had a drop, unfortunately. Uh, but okay, it happens. But I think that the efficiency that he did show, while his completion percentage is not going to wow you, it's not. I mean, it's 17 to 35. It's not a you know, blow away number. But I thought he made the right plays. At the right times, uh, uses his legs uh, appropriately throughout the course of the game. Outside of maybe one pass, where I think one got tipped up at one point, perhaps, where he tried to force it in too tight a window, there was one crossing routes. There was a crossing routes one where I was just like, where was that supposed to go? Uh, so there was, out of 35 attempts, I think there might have been legitimately two where you would have been like, mm, all right, not great. But other than that, and neither one of them were really that close. The one that got tipped around or whatever, that was, like I say, that might, might have been a little bit in jeopardy. But truly, some of the other completions just go like, the risk-reward was way in your favor, so okay. Uh, and otherwise, was really efficient. Picked up a lot of first downs, again, in the air and on the ground. And it worked and kept it working with the running game. Uh, and they complemented each other perfectly, so... Yeah, And I don't think, uh, to your point that we, you know, I think we discussed before, like, do you you have to have an elite running back to go in there and win at Ohio State? Well, I didn't think Anthony Brown played like an elite running back on Saturday. Quarterback. Uh, uh, Quarterback. (laughs) There we go. Although he rushed for 65 yards, uh, so. (laughs) I didn't think he played like an elite quarterback. But he, by no means of the imagination, did anything to jeopardize the game. To lose the game in any way shape or form so while he may not have had a quote-unquote elite performance to accomplish it the ground game with the with, with the scheme with the offensive line that was uh but the quarterback play while good was not otherworldly but it didn't need to be and i thought it was fine I basically i thought he did the game plan i thought he was did basically what was asked of him and but if you want to get into completion percentage, like I say, all right, all right, well, a couple of drops here or there, whatever. So what, three or four more completions was going to be the thing that, that really sways your your perception of the game or of how he played? No, I thought he played well. i say, well, good. Maybe even, you know, borderline great, depending on how you want to, you know, chuck it all up. Because he did take some shots and lowered the shoulder and, you know, made some conversions there where he had those plays. I mean, he had some really nice plays. But was his performance Uh, on the top end you know the the plays that he did make was his performance the reason why Oregon won the game no but at the same time it didn't need to be that's okay that's okay and there may be a game that comes along the way over the course of the season where he's asked to do that much more and he does make those kinds of plays but on Saturday he didn't and he didn't have to on the plays that he had to make he made them and that's all you can ask and like I say so that's why I say I thought he played well but it wasn't otherworldly but it didn't need to be and that's not a criticism of him. It just just was. And I didn't think three more completions was, like I say, going to change. I, I don't think my perception of like, well, 17 to 35 is approximately 50. I don't think if it was 20 to 35, I'd be going, boy, yeah, what a, a great, like, no, like, it is what it is. It's a, it's a couple of pass completions one way or another. is not ultimately going to change the the entire outlook of the game. I thought he played pretty well.
0: Agreed. Uh Now let's move on to the other team's quarterback and their offense against mm-hmm. Oregon's defense and discuss whether or not we believe this is a red flag or just one of those things. 612 yards of offense for Ohio State, but only 28 points passed for 484. Richard Freshman QB, right, Stroud? Yep. Uh Or is he – yeah. Um, So, you know, Ben, don't break – there's – Former Oregon defensive back Anthony Newman in a, te- in a text thread got all pissed off at me when I brought up the yards saying how, you know, every true defensive player knows it's about the points, not about the yards. And 100 percent. Correct. It doesn't matter how many yards you give up. You don't give up a ton of points. 28 is not a ton. They have some good fourth down stops here and there, et cetera, et cetera, including one in the red zone or maybe two, at least one. What did you think of the defense overall?
1: The points is what matters, yes. The fourth down stops obviously deflates and takes away a lot of those yards. The sixty two at the end of the first half were irrelevant, so that you lop off immediately. I mean that 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 was totally useless. It made no no difference. Having said that, uh, I'm not one to overlook six twelve, I'm not one to overlook uh, four eighty four. Uh, I mean it just just you, you you can't. I mean if you do that, you're 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 creating your own peril. Um so you can contextualize how it got to that point, but there were some issues there. Uh, now, having said that, you know there are two sides of the coin. The Brown game by Ohio State was effective; they ran for over four yards of carry, right? But for whatever reason, and I do mean this legitimately, for whatever reason, Ohio State abandoned it. And you could say, well, when you have Alave and Wilson and Smith and Jigba to do what they were doing and they throw for 484, what are you going to knock? No, no. Right. They were, if you're going to try and wear on a defense, yeah, they got the production in the air. But then at certain points, I, I didn't think they incorporated the ground game in. Not nearly enough. Not nearly enough. And when they did and they were hitting Oregon, it was in tempo. It was in 12 personnel, I think it was the third quarter, where 12 personnel came out, and they hammered them on the one drive, and then they shot themselves in the foot with the false start, which allowed Oregon to make the sub, and then that totally took and deflated the entire momentum that Iowa State had. So Oregon has some things to adjust here. It has obviously the tempo where, the you know, at least the one touchdown, I think it was two, uh, where, I mean, they're downright looking at their wristbands and, and just runs right past them. I mean, that, Mario said, you know, that that that's just not going to happen. So I think you're going to see an adjustment there in a big big way. Um, things are going to be cut down from a communication standpoint and made a lot yeah. more simple in that regard. Having that's said wild. that, because that's that was a back-to-back week thing. Yeah. The tempo thing was back-to-back weeks. You know, they got hit for tempo by Fresno State, they got hit for tempo by Ohio State. That's something they have to fix. So whether that is tempo led to the yards which it did ultimately uh, and even points. That is something that does need to be adjusted. Whether you're worried about 12 personnel and and getting a sub in there and certain other things, you're not worried about that this week. You're probably not worried about that the following week. And from a tempo standpoint, you're probably not worried about it against Stanford. 12 personnel you are. But there are issues to be corrected. Now, I will say, Miss Tackles was not one of them. I didn't think they missed a whole heck of a lot as a team, and certain players in particular made about as sure tackles as it got. Bennett Williams, didn't get Noah deep, Sewell, really. no, and they the only pass over the top at all was the forty one yarder, which did eventually set up a touchdown. But even that was not truly that over the top. It was a deep throw. Don't get me wrong, but no, they didn't get beat deep.
0: Well, there were a couple like you and I. You said earlier about Brown missing. Stroud didn't miss a couple I think two. That might have been touchdown, so there was someone getting least, beat deep, but they at didn't least. catch the ball. Right. So, you know, so anyway. yeah, but the
1: throw's not there. The throw's not there. But you're, you're right, right. Yes, I mean they, there were a couple. There was one where along the sideline, on the uh, left sideline, which was the Oregon sideline, when Ohio State was driving to the south, uh, where Manning was in coverage and he popped back up and uh, he was very celebratory. And I'm just looking at it, going, "Yeah, but it was because of the throw." But be that as it may, um, and then there was one when Ohio State <laughs> was you driving that the other TVs direction. Well, well, that's They're waving their
0: arms incomplete, and it's like, not because of you?
1: That's that's D.B.'s, <laughs> though. Uh, and then the other way, Ohio State was driving to the north, and it was also to the Oregon sideline, and uh, the ball just completely sailed out of bounds. Um, and away from, I believe, that was to Alave, if memory serves me correctly. So, having said that, you know, Michael Wright ends up getting targeted a whole bunch. Uh, I thought early on, they had ma- either they were matching upright with Wilson early Or it was just happenstance because early on, they were not necessarily sticking to to field boundary as much. The first couple of possessions, which they had done the previous week also, he kind of stuck with Wilson a good amount from the game. I thought when he matched up with Wilson, he actually did best. Uh, When he was matched up with Alave, I think Ohio State went to Alave a lot there. And with mixed results. I mean, there were times where Alave had some fine catches. uh, And most of the time, Wright was right there with him. And there were times where Wright won the battles. I mean, that was just... That was for those two players. That's a game tape that they'll both cite for for NFL future purposes. Alave will say, "Oh, well, who's a great corner you up against?" They're gonna go, "Well, you're gonna want to look at that tape." And even though you give up, like I say, probably 100 plus yards in coverage, Michael Wright's gonna go and say, "Oh, you want to see good game tape? Uh, how about the Ohio State game when you know matched up with Alave and Wilson all day and how did how did I fare?" You know, kind of thing. And Grand scheme of things, like I say, I thought they both did well. Yes, obviously, again, Ohio State had the prolific numbers. We talked about that. But when the ground game was, for whatever reason, not as big a factor. I mean, you got to remember, this is an Ohio State program that is used to reeling off 200 yards rushing each game like it's a birthright. Like, (laughs) I mean, go back and look in their box scores. I mean, anything below 200 is like five-alarm fire. So for them to be held to what they were held when they were averaging four yards a carry, I don't care what they put in the air. That's the part where I say, I just don't understand what Ohio state's tactic was um, in terms of, yeah, they had 300 yard receiver, but my goodness,
0: their lead back Williams was 5.5 and then uh Henderson was 4.5. So those two were actually averaging more than five. Or and they didn't even to touch
1: five, master man. Teague. And I, I don't think Ohio state fans are necessarily uh, uh too upset about that, but he is a, Cruising, bulky back. And like I say, if you're going to turn to the ground game at all, and they had 31 carries. But my goodness, I mean, let let, let the big guy get in there and, and knock around some people, um, even for just a handful, just so that, again, you try to wear on an Oregon defense that particularly in the front seven, as well as they played, they were susceptible because they were getting hit with injuries throughout the course of the game. They entered, obviously, Hurt. But if you want to try and put a bigger dent in them, if you're Ohio state, you had, you had the opportunity and you let them off the hook in that regard in terms of the front seven. Yeah. Again, credit to him for putting up a whole bunch of the air, but you didn't hit over the top. It wasn't necessarily for touchdowns. And in the ground game, I just didn't understand what Ohio state was doing. Like I say, in terms of just how much they didn't do, how much they were willing to continue to put it in the air and Trout played well. Again, he, 484 is the second most in a game in program history. And it's only his second start. But as I said to somebody after the game, somebody said to me after the game, they go, here you have a game and a quarterback throws for 484 yards. I'm not even sure he played well. <laughs> and that's, yeah, I mean, that's, that's just a part of it. So that's where you get into the, the yards, points, um, and how the defense overall performed. But there are things, to, to the point for Oregon's purposes. Oh, boy, are there things uh, from a tempo standpoint in particular. And 12 personnel in particular that they have got to clean up. They have got to clean up this week.
0: So let's segue into what this means. And you mentioned playoff discussion, etc., cetera, et cetera. So I've always been of the mind since the playoff format came about. Finally, I've been begging for it since I was like six years old, but that if the Pac 12 goes 12, 12 and one, if, if the Pac 12 championship season goes 12 and one, they're going to get in. So far, it's only happened twice where two teams that got in. They were both 12 and one. So for me, what this does for Oregon is, well, obviously they run the table, they're going to get in. If they were to lose one but still win the conference, I think they can still get in. This sort of gives them a get-out-of-jail-free card if they lose that one game. But my question for you is, can they run the table in the Pac-12? Can they avoid, avoid more than one loss? And for me, I still say I don't know because of some of the red flags. One, the defense, and then two, Offensively, yes, they ran all over Ohio State. But we just talked about how the Buckeyes were doing some crazy things on defense that Oregon took advantage of, and it reminds me a little bit of the Utah game in the in the Pac-12 title game, where Utah, the number one rushing defense in the country, Oregon found something in the middle where they thought they could exploit it right up the gut. And I, I, th- I think I talked to Hanson after the game, and and uh, maybe Lemieux, and they both were saying, "Yeah, we just kept running it over and over and over again." And they rushed for however many yards it was. I think Verdell had 250 or so. But the game before that against Oregon State, the run game was weak. And the game after that against Wisconsin, the run game was weak. And then all of last year, pretty much, the run game was weak. So was this the run game turning things around? Or was this a matchup situation that they took advantage of and Ohio State never adjusted? Or is this run game going to be elite? If it's not elite and the defense is suspect, how the hell did they possibly run the table in the Pac-12?
1: Well, uh, to boy, there's there's a lot there. Um, there was a lot
0: there. Sorry, my bad.
1: To <laughs> uh, ultimately, to the truly big picture, can can they run the table and be a uh, potentially a playoff team? Absolutely. I mean, you know, again, they they are the favorite to to win the league. Uh, and right now, quite literally, right now on their schedule in the North Division, let's keep it to the North Division for a moment. Who in the North Division are they supposed to be afraid of? Stanford, maybe. Afraid of.
0: Not afraid. Afraid is a strong word, but yeah. leery.
1: Leery because it's a road game. And, and yes, Stanford plays the way it does. And it's bleed the clock. And again, the 12 personnel aspect for sure. But when Ohio State was doing 12, they were also using it in tempo. <laughs> so, uh, but be yeah, that as it may, uh, no one in the North should be a problem. Should be a problem. The biggest game right now in Oregon's schedule is UCLA. the trip to UCLA. Yeah. That's it. So,
0: Whom they might have to play twice.
1: They might. Yeah. Depending on how the South breaks. But but it's Uh,
0: early though. That's the thing. Like something's crazy is going to happen. I mean, did you see Stanford beating USC?
1: Uh, not the way they did. That's for sure.
0: Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Like there's always something that rises up and bites you is, I mean, Oregon's only gone undefeated once. And that was 2010. And even then they almost lost at Cal. They won 15, 13. Two years ago after they thumped USC, it looked like the Ducks were going to finish things off and then they go and lose at Arizona State. So when I look at Stanford, Arizona State, and UCLA, based on the red flags and based on the idea that I still don't buy the running game as dominant yet, I want to see them do it routinely week in and week out, I, could, I don't believe they're going to win all three of those games, but they don't have to as long as they win the Pac-12 championship game, then I think they're in the playoffs.
1: Um, I, I I credit the ground game more than that uh, now and and have less concerns about it probably going into the future. There, will probably, there, there may be one or two. I think UCLA is one of them. Um, where where they may have to uh they obviously have a legitimate matchup there. Utah could be one. Certainly they're always pretty sound against the run game. Uh but I I I'm not I'm not necessarily chalking up losses and I don't go back by way of history in, in that sense in that you know what, it hasn't been done until it gets done. Like that that part of it to me is like I I, I don't worry about like what does that mean, you know, what is what does the past mean to now in regard especially in college sport, like I mean, if you take that standpoint, then the Cubs should never won the World Series again, or the Red Sox should never won the World Series again, or, you know, I mean, Clemson should never have been a national championship contender. Like, I mean, until it gets done, it, you know, I, I get it, but I, I get the the frame of mind, but at the same time, I, I, it has no bearing on now, uh, is what I'm getting at. So, ultimately, I, I there there's plenty of issues and plenty of areas where they either need to correct, or... They need to further enhance, like, to point, the ground game. We're going real well, but it's not leading the country, so there's always room for improvement. You know, it's in the top 25. (laughs) It's awfully good. It's off to a nice start. But the point is, yeah, there's plenty of rooms to enhance and improve, whether that be because they're doing well and they need to make it better, or because things aren't so good and they need to make it better. One way or another. This team is not a finished product, but no team is in week two. Right now, believe it or not, yeah, if he has Nick Saban, if his team is a finished team. (laughs) Boy, if you haven't been following what's been going down in Tuscaloosa the last week or so in terms of how he's perceived some things. He's uh, just been regaling uh, his program in terms of uh, uh, mentally uh, how players have been approaching things uh, since beating up on Miami. So nobody's a finished product out there. Not Oregon, not Alabama, not Georgia, not Clearly, Texas A and M. Uh, so it's early. It's early. So are there areas to improve and what and look to improve? Yes, on both on both sides of the ball and on special teams, which actually has done quite well to start the season. Uh, all things considered, for Oregon. So can they reach the playoff? Yes. Can they reach the playoff? Obviously undefeated. That's a given. Can they reach it as a one loss team? I to me, I, I I mean, one, you try to avoid it as damned as you can, but I don't chalk it up. I don't think it's a foregone conclusion that a 12-1 and uh, Pac-12 champion gets in. I don't take it as a foregone conclusion at all.
0: Yeah, it's not a foregone conclusion. I'm just saying the only two times there's been a 12-1 team they both got in, and with the strength of that win that they just had, I just would be shocked if they didn't get in. But you never know what's going to happen.
1: But to your point in terms of things that could happen, I mean, we mentioned earlier, like what happens if Ohio State loses to Penn State, and now they're a two-loss team. Uh, And they get dragged down a bit. And they don't get in the Big Ten title game. And, you know, they don't have the benefit of the additional data point. And they're not a team who's in the top six or eight teams at the end of the season. So now there's a one-loss Oregon looking at a diminished uh, value win, relatively speaking, uh, to where we are today, certainly. And then what? You know, well, you know Alabama and Georgia are going to be there at the end. Hypothetically, for argument's sake, say that they uh, win out, play each other, only one has a loss. Are you going to knock out the loser uh, automatically uh, from the top four? Are they, they're going to, you know, to be one and two at that point. I mean, if they're both undefeated and playing the SEC title game, are, let me ask you drop... Who in the
0: Big Ten? Who in the Big Ten though is going to win the championship and be better than a twelve and one Oregon team with win Ohio over Ohio State? That team would have had to beaten Ohio State more than be, likely.
1: It could be Penn State. It could be Penn State.
0: So if they – well, they go – I mean, if you have four undefeated teams, then, yeah, Oregon's not going to make it. But if if Penn State has a win over Ohio State, that win would be diluted as well.
1: Could, but here's a – like, Penn State plays Auburn this weekend. Now, I think they're going to win. But what if Auburn beats Penn State somehow? They shoot up. Penn State comes down a little. But as the season goes on, Auburn keeps winning, loses to Alabama – Maybe lose another one. I think Auburn's going to lose multiple times, but we're playing out hypotheticals here. Yeah, Here's a one-loss Penn State, beats Ohio State, runs the table in the Big Ten, wins the Big Ten title game. Their loss is to Auburn, who is a one- or two-loss team who doesn't win the West Division, who's in the top six or seven nationally. Ohio State lost twice. Oregon lost once, but when you start getting into caliber of losses, Here you have the top two teams in the SEC, the loser only loses in the title game. Uh, The third team in the SEC in this hypothetical, maybe even fourth, depending on what happens with Florida and Georgia, um, and and Florida and Alabama for this week for for another one. Uh, But an Auburn team is pretty high up there. An Ohio State team that'll be high up there, but how high up there? And if the loss for Oregon's purposes, for conference play, outside of UCLA, there is no loss that Oregon can incur in conference play that is going to be as good as the losses that these other top teams would be in, who would be in this hypothetical conversation come late November, early December, the caliber of that loss is going to be lower. They can't lose to anyone in the Pac-12 other than UCLA and say that was a good loss. They can't. There's no one, there's no one in this league right now who's at that caliber. Maybe Arizona State can get to that point, but they're not on the schedule. So and maybe USC could resurrect some things right now. And I'm I don't believe they will, but they're not on the schedule. So there's no one I forgot, on I forgot she wasn't on schedule. Yeah, so there's no one on Oregon's Oregon schedule.
0: schedule and they play, you know, my
1: bad. And as Colorado as formidable as they appeared to be at the moment, Oregon can't lose to Colorado. And, ex- and and expect to, you know, stay in the conversation. So point is is only that UCLA game is a game where they might be able to get a mulligan. And that if it means redeeming yourself in, and UCLA runs a table, but then you beat them in the Pac-12 title game. So there's all kinds of scenarios, and I'm sure we'll look forward to discussing all of these hypotheticals for the next 15 oh weeks. God, can we, can um, we make
0: a, a, can we make a vow right now and not discuss Well, we, we yeah, but well. After Washington? Right, well, <laughs> no, well, after UCLA. When the, UCLA, uh, yeah,
1: <laughs> when the opponent this week is Stony Brook, we can delve into the, the rabbit hole that is. We have the luxury, but be that as it may. Um, there are scenarios you can concoct whereby, a undefeated Oklahoma is, or whoever, you know, yeah, probably undefeated Oklahoma is that team along with the two others in the SEC, and now you get to the Penn State, now you get to potentially even the Ohio State, you know, or Wisconsin or whoever the case is, not Wisconsin, but whoever those from the West Division, there are ways by which you can concoct difficult scenarios for the Ducks with a loss, if that loss particularly is not a very good loss. So, long way down the road. And like I say, for at least the next couple of weeks, eh, Oregon fans don't need to worry about the team losing right now for the next couple of weeks. So, that's that's a little bit off the radar. Hey,
0: Oregon fans know crazy things happen in Arizona, man. Arizona's like
1: they're not going to a taboo state. They're not going to Arizona. Huh? Oh, that's home? Never mind then. That's home. Never mind then. Yeah.
0: Take that. So, I, I, my, my Arizona schedule knowledge is not up on par today. Okay, let's move on to the, to the names people want to talk about other than Cam McCormick in terms of injuries. Kayvon Thibodeau and Justin Flo. Uh, flow, it sounds like based on Mario's comments yesterday that it's pretty serious. Uh, multiple weeks, maybe this season. He, he seemed a little coy. Maybe you have more information on that than I do. And then Kayvon is going to be back, not going to play this week. I wouldn't imagine. Uh, what's your read and assessment on those, uh, two situations?
1: Well, we'll see you today and tomorrow, uh, in terms of KT and, uh, if we see him trotting off the, the practice field and the like, uh, again, there's certainly no, there is no reason. For him to play this week. There, there just isn't. And there really isn't. Uh, he so, needs his
0: reps. Just kidding.
1: There, I mean, <laughs> he can pad his staff. I mean, there, there's not. There's This game is of the no stony value. Brook
0: left tackle is like, thank God.
1: There is Go th- This game is <laughs> of no value to Kayvon Thibodeau. On an individual level. The, it, it is not. The risk reward of this game for him is 1,000% against him. Now you could say that, well, is that any different for any other of Oregon's players? <clears throat> can we live in the real world for a moment, please? <laughs> you know, we li- You know, they're, they're playing a the game. People have to be out yeah. there. People have to play. And I'm not yeah. telling you that this is 100% of the, the wavelength. Look, if he can play and he wants to play, he'll play. If he's cleared to play and he wants to play, he'll play. He doesn't have to. The Ducks don't need him to. And if the ankle is absolutely not 100% pristine... <laughs> he probably shouldn't because this is not the game in any way, shape or form to push yourself to get back on the field. It just plain isn't. So that's on KT on flow. Yeah, obviously it sounds like a serious situation. Um, whenever Mario gets a little bit vague in terms of the ones that he at least concedes are longer term in nature. Uh, that's usually not a good sign. Uh, so whether we're talking about with Justin Flo or drew Mathis, um, They're down. They're down multiple inside linebackers. We haven't even mentioned Jackson LaDuke, but that goes back to the preseason. So they're down multiple inside backers. And that's where Jeff Bossa gets moved over. Uh, So, look, it's going to be thin at that position. It is. And it could be thin at that position the rest of the way. Having said that, can they still win a whole bunch of games? Can they still beat pretty much everybody on their schedule with what they've got? Yeah. This is still a really talented team right. this is still a really talented team and a deep team and as I talked tomorrow about it after the game, wrote about it a little bit yesterday, this is not the roster in any way shape or form that he inherited as head coach in December of seventeen really 2018 not even close you know the depth of this roster. And the volume of this roster. Remember, back in 2018, they had like 63 to 68 players, scholarship players. So
0: was that, was that your first season? Yeah. Okay.
1: So that team was real thin. So when we start getting into depth issues. I mean, remember back in 18, Isaac Slade went down with the shoulder injury early. Uh, Jackson went down late. Uh, Lana went down. They had injuries at linebacker that year, and they were getting down in a hurry that time. And look at who was in and who was out and who had to play and ultimately where those guys ended up panning out to and what have you. All right, yeah, they're down multiple guys and important guys. I'm not overlooking the injuries that they have, but this team is built very differently than it has been compared to 18, compared to 19 Compared, yes, even to last year. They do have a, unfortunately, growing list of injuries, though. Some of more serious nature, as it appears, Justin Flo. Uh, obviously, already with Drew Mathis. Cam McCormick. With others that happened in the preseason. To Patrick Herbert. To uh, Jonathan Dennis. To I mean, yes, they, they have several. Several. But, is this still a team that has all the ability in the world to continue to achieve and succeed with what's in front of them. Yes. Yes, they do. But I don't think for a a player who has the chance to return this week in KT, insofar as we'll see, um, a, I, I don't think he needs to push it. Right. Aaron's right. I mean, I, if I had to bet on it, I'd say he probably doesn't, but I don't think that's because of a medical side of things. Uh, You know, he could be cleared. He still not may not necessarily play this week because well, it's Stony Brook. (laughs) <laughs> That's why. Uh I agree. to uh to the big picture for the Pac twelve USC Fire and Clay Halton and uh former Oregon cornerbacks coach Dante Williams becomes the interim head coach the rest of the way. And uh everyone in America has put out a list of potential candidates. There it wouldn't be uh, a job search uh of in college football without betting lines on such things. Uh and, and Cris- without was- Urban
0: Meyer's names on the list. <laughs>
1: yep. <laughs> yeah, of course, I mean, at this point, you know, might as well shoot the moon. So, uh, so all sorts of names are on the list. Plenty of them make all the sense in the world. One of them that has made it out there on some people's list. I will say for some people, not everybody has put Mario Cristobal's name on the list. It is about a, probably about a 70, 30 split in favor. You know, there are some who have, uh, elected not to put his name on the list because, they don't see necessarily the benefit of him taking the job, or they don't think he would leave, or whatever the case is. Uh, having said that, is it a possibility? Is it a real, true possibility? Is it a rational possibility? What say you, Aaron?
0: <laughs> I think it's absolute lunacy. It's basically someone gets fired, there's a job opening, it's a big job like USC, and so you just start pulling names out of your backside throw them out there, and I think this is one of them, the assumption being that SC is a stronger, greater, bigger power, which traditionally it is. I mean, when was the last time a, a team not named USC from the Pac-12 won a national title when, when Washington split with Miami in uh, 91, was it? And then before that, maybe UCLA somewhere in the, in, back in the day? So there is that draw that USC has, but it would make zero sense for Mario Cristobal to go to USC. One, he smacked around USC twice the last time he's played them. He's recruiting like crazy out of Southern California. He's had higher-ranked uh, recruiting classes. I think all three of his recruiting classes, or, is it, or does he have four now, the fourth is coming up, I think, have been rated ahead of USC's. Uh, so I just see no benefit in going down there. Also, it would just look really, really bad. Not that it always matters to coaches, but he's been spending three years, four years, telling SoCal kids to come to Eugene and now he's going to tell all the kids from Eugene and Eugene now that he got from SoCal. Oh, but I wanted you to come to Oregon and set out oh, Oregon's better than SC. But I'm going to leave Oregon to go to SC. And now I'm going to try and tell USC kids down or Southern California kids down there to stay home at USC. Don't go to Oregon. You don't want to be there. Even though I, it's just the hypocrisy. It's just crazy to me. Although we know college football, no one cares about that. I do. I think it would look horrible. And I don't think it would be a good move for him at all. I think the only program in the nation you have to really be f- fearful for him leaving to would be Miami.
1: I think there's somewhere else in there, but
0: <clears throat> well, uh, Bama Bama is in the truly the
1: in the truly long run and the truly long run. Um, but in the, in the here and now in the here and now of what's actually going to be available this offseason, it obviously already is with USC. Uh, <laughs> look, I know I, I, Nothing shocks me anymore in college football. So, I mean, I was not by any means surprised that Mario's name came up on a lot of these lists. Uh, He's coming off of, obviously, what is his signature win of his coaching career. There are two sides in job searches. There is the potential candidate side, and there is the institution side. If you're USC, you make a call, I mean, you'd, you'd be foolish not to. I mean, he's got to be somebody who you give a ring and say, hey, what do you think? Is this even a conversation to be had if you're USC? You know, if you're Mike Bowen, you're making the call. You know, somebody's making the You have to be making the call. Having said that, I don't see USC as the job that Mario leave, would leave to now or well into the future. There are there are just things about it that I I just don't I just don't and I think for what they have built right now and especially if this season proves to be a very very special season if they make the playoff let's, let's let's not you know anything that comes after that is is above and beyond and over the top if they make the college football playoff this season with what they have coming back I don't think. You need, why, why would you be leaving to go somewhere else to restart in that process? No doubt. And knowing, yeah, knowing what you've left behind yeah, you is going to face be something it. that you're going to have to face, uh, right. you know, multiple times, obviously in the future. I, I don't see it um, personally. I just don't. But again, at the same time, there's nothing about college football that surprises me. Uh, quite literally, any coach's name could come up and it doesn't, I mean, for instance, on one of these ridiculous betting lines. You know, somebody threw out Mike Gundy. Does anyone think in their right mind that Mike Gundy fits Southern California? I mean, forget about whether he would take the job. He should be absolutely head over heels with the fact that his name is even mentioned on something as ridiculous as a betting line for this. So that's where you just go like, come on. You know, so some of these are a little bit much. um, But again, for in terms of potential candidate lists. You have to put his name on it. If USC, you have to make a call. But I would personally not believe that this is the job in any stretch of the imagination. That, for again, there's a lot of reasons to it, but I just don't see this one. I don't. Uh, but again, there's also nothing in college football that surprises me. Uh, there just isn't. So I it's going to be a job search that plays out over many 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 months so we're we're all going to have to you know it's it's USC the the USC job search we're we're just in that world now and uh we're all along for the ride what can i say um but be that as it may now to this week's game in stony brook so we promised we'd give at least 15 seconds and that's about it um, because there is, there's just this, this is. I know. Oh, FCS teams have won some games. If you know anything at all in terms of the teams that have won, and this team, you know that uh, that would that would be totally unfair to uh, Montana or Jacksonville State uh, or yes, even Eastern Washington uh, to in any way, shape, or form uh, put them in the same sentence with Stony Brook. So, um, <laughs> about the only thing that matters uh, for Oregon fans' perspective uh, heading into this week's game. Who is Stony Brook and where are they from? Uh, Stony Brook is an FCS school on Long Island, New York. Uh, and I can tell you that not only because I had to look it up. No, no, no. Uh, I grew up about <laughs> 20 or so miles away from Stony Brook. So, uh, I've been to Stony Brook's campus. I've been to Stony Brook stadium. I've been in the press box. Uh, yeah, that's about it. Uh, they are the Sea Wolves, uh, which is a mythical creature and their mascot, I kid you not, is Wolfie the Sea Wolf. Very original. So, Uh, that's all you need to know about the Stony Brook Seawolves. Um, that's it. That's just plain it. This is the second Power 5 opponent they've ever played. The only other one was Syracuse, which obviously is a mere bus ride. Uh, yeah, that's it. So, nothing to worry about this week by way of competition. Uh, if you're going to the game, I applaud you, uh, for that. Uh, because this is a, uh, to to call this a mismatch is, uh, to be polite,
0: so let me let me ask you this: If you took the organizational chart and you just scraped off the top two names on each list, each position,
1: with the still be favored by four touchdowns. Still-
0: <laughs> ask you. Four <laughs> might be more than that. No,
1: quite literally.
0: <laughs> Put the last two recruiting classes out there.
1: There was a game back in the fall of. I believe. I want to say it was 2010. Stony Brook played at South Florida. And this one, South Florida had BJ Daniels as quarterback. It was competitive at, ha- at coming up to half. Stony Brook was even, I think they were, he might've been leading. Um, and then it, something screwy up at the end of the half. Bottom line, South Florida pulled away in abundance and, and what was competitive quickly turned very much not. Stony Brook came back from that game and they had lost their top two corners. And I think, There's something in the realm of four or five starting defenders for the season due to injury because FCS teams don't have 85 players. They have 65 players and because the other team is a lot bigger, stronger, faster than they are. Uh, I'm not going to pretend to project and predict what may happen in that regard because that's just absurd. I'm just going to tell you that Oregon is a grossly bigger, stronger, faster, and obviously deeper team and stony brook on saturday so again the game in and of itself uh the outcome not even remotely to be discussed uh not even i i when they post the line by the end of the week these they used to never even post these lines then they got to doing it like the day before for these fcs games it is whatever oregon wants it to be <laughs> that's just the facts so yeah i turn ter- let's put it this way for oregon's perspective for this week to me We will finally have answered for us who the number two quarterback is. Uh, Now we may see the number two and the number three quarterback. One of the questions that I'll have for Mario tomorrow, actually, uh, because it was not the most pressing to get to him yesterday, was will will Robbie Ashford change his jersey number? Because right now he would not be eligible to play in the game by rule. So will he change his jersey number so that Oregon can have all four quarterbacks play in the game? That is, to me, one of the storylines of the week heading into this game, to give you any sense of things. Uh, that is just the reality. Now, again, I don't I don't like FCS games in the first place. But if Oregon were playing a Montana or Jacksonville State or North Dakota State or James Madison uh, or South Dakota or whoever, I wouldn't necessarily be saying these things. I know of what I speak here. Um, this is not going to be pretty. So... <laughs> We will get to assess. I think you'll see lots of true freshmen. I think we'll get to see the number three, four, five, six, maybe even number seven running back. Uh all of the wide receivers. Uh the full depth chart along both lines of scrimmage. And uh what can I say? Lots of friends and family, I'm sure, will be very, very happy uh a Saturday evening for a four thirty kickoff. Um, but uh let's put it this way. This has it, to me, here's a prop bet, Aaron. And and I know you're not coming to the game on Saturday but I can't knock it for it. No. Um, but <laughs> will there be, and I am not kidding, will there be a running clock at any point in the fourth quarter?
0: Mm, can you do
1: that? If Brook agrees, <laughs> <laughs> if they, and let's put it this way, they'll probably ask if it got that out of hand. Will there be a running clock?
0: I'm going to say no, because I think Mario would go f- to the four deep. <laughs> the fourth stringers, put them out there, get them some work, and they won't completely pummel Stony Brook. So, so Stony can get some work against the fourth teamers, maybe.
1: If it gets... <laughs> if Oregon tops 60... That's
0: embarrassing. You can't do that. If they ask... Well, no. If they ask, yeah.
1: but I, If they ask, you ain't saying no. That's for sure. Um, if Oregon tops 60... I don't think
0: they're going to ask. That's embarrassing.
1: But... If they top sixty, and yeah, that is a distinct possibility <laughs> at some point in the third quarter, okay, then I I, I think that's a threshold. If it's forty nine, no. If it's fifty six, eh. But if Oregon tops sixty, I think you know it's over in terms of I think the running. I I think if you 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 they they have a schedule that matters they have a season that matters this is a paycheck i understand what's being done here i get the big picture sure but and a fine opportunity in a building that they'll you know they'll never get to play in a setting as, as good no matter how many people are there etc but i think there is a there is no less than a 30% chance of a running clock let's put it that way i i think it could get that out of hand i really do because Damn. Sleeping. You're not. They went one and three in the spring. You're in a
0: coma on Stony Brook.
1: (laughs) They went one and three in the spring. If they were a a (laughs) roster littered with you know ACC uh, or even you know like CUSA transfers or something, that'd be one thing. This is not that kind of team. It's not. It's just not. So, you know, I I, I, from a. the only thing to me that they compare to Oregon in is that they are both members of the AAU. So I'm sure their university presidents will uh, chat it up in that regard. Having said that uh, on the football field is not one of those areas. So I'm sure we got to see the full Oregon depth chart uh, top to bottom, left to right, uh, upside down and in any language you wish. Uh, but no, I don't think this is going to be a terribly competitive game a- for more than mere minutes. Uh, so, um, we will get to, like I say, we'll get to examine the backup quarterback, maybe even the number three quarterback and maybe even the number four quarterback by the time this is over. Uh, and yes, I would say that to me, the, those are, those and, and other depth chart issues are about the, uh, the only true main talking points. So we will still, in terms of next week, uh, I don't think we'll be looking back at le- the, this Saturday's game a whole lot. It will be very much setting up for, uh, Arizona, uh, and the start of Pac 12 play. So. Appreciate you folks for listening as always. It's this latest edition of Ducks Confidential Podcast. Make sure to, to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Uh Give us a five-star review, a like, it's, uh, it's et cetera. So that way it's easier for folks to find. Uh, and, uh, yeah, again, appreciate you for listening each and every week as always. We'll see you next week uh, for, like I say, what will hopefully be a very, very, very brief synopses of
0: – It won't be um, very confidential.
1: No, of what will be a a (laughs) jam-packed box score, I'm sure, uh, full of participants. And then we we can shift all attention to Pac-12 play. And the start Pac-12 play for the Ducks against the Wildcats the week thereafter. So, again, for me, James Crepe, and he's Aaron Fentress. We'll see you next week.